temple cleansing. I want to draw some lines up behind me so you can have a visual. So notice carefully, pay attention, notice the line that's drawing down the middle. You might not expect that. That's because we're going to label these as one, you'll see the one come up behind me, and two, and you'll see it change. We're not hearing me? Okay. You can hear me in the room, but you can't hear me out there. We, we got sound now? Testing one, two, three. Check. Credit card. Cash. Not sure. Nothing? Maybe it died. Okay. Try it again. It says it's on. There you go. Okay, I'm on. So it'll be interesting putting together the online thing and making it sound okay. So the temple cleansings, we're going to talk about both of them. I don't know if you noticed the S popped up there. Some of you might not realize until today there were two. It doesn't seem like there were two, but there were two. And I'll show you that real quickly. First of all, there's the pre-Passover temple cleansing. Whoa, something just got clicked. It got weird. I'm not sure what's happening now. There we go. There we go, the pre-Passover. Then there's the second one, which is the Passion Week temple cleansing. And if you want to look at the Passion Week temple cleansings, you'll have to look at all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I'll give you the references. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. We're not looking at that one. It's a different one. We're looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. This is the first temple cleansing. Now, out of all of the gospel writers... John is the most detailed, the most thorough about the Passion Week. It is not by accident that John's the one that gave us the only details of the Passover, the pre-Passover temple cleansing. And it's fascinating to me when I play it out in my mind because we know that he did it two times. Each time he fashioned a whip of many strands. Each time he turned over tables and drove out the criminals that were in the temple with crooked criminal behavior going on. And I find it fascinating that he starts off his ministry with a miracle and then quickly escalates with this kind of behavior in the temple. And then Toward the end, he escalates it even more, getting people very upset with him, ultimately taking him to the cross. I'm going to give you a quote of the guy I talked about last week, Dr. Paul Thurman Butler. In all three accounts of the second cleansing, the Jewish rulers are represented as seeking to destroy Jesus. There is no mention of such an intensified animosity here in John's account 
of the first cleansing of the temple. So it seems like it's God's providence, his design, his sovereignty. He set it up so that at the beginning, he catches everybody off guard of, whoa, who is this guy and why is he doing this? And at the end, it's that guy again. He did this before. We're not putting up with this. Seems like God just set it all up. So this is kind of an interesting little parenthetical thing surrounding Jesus' ministry. Let's go ahead and read the first verse in our text this morning. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let me show you a map, because some people may not have ever heard this. Some of you have grown up hearing it. But I'm going to show you a map that will pop up behind me. And this is a map of what we call Palestine. Uh, but we don't, people, some, of us, some people don't like to notice that Palestine and Philistines come from the same origination. So we'll not dive into that this morning. But this is a, a map of the first century of where things sat as we know them. And I want to show you right off the bat, I'll show you where Capernaum is. Because in our text last week, we left off after Cana. You can see Cana on the map as well. But after Cana, then Jesus went to Capernaum. Then today, we see that he goes to Jerusalem. So you'll see that on the map. See the location? Now, if you're looking at this, this is a map that's set up the way they're supposed to be set up. If you're used to GPS and you like GPS the way I do, I don't want to have north always north on my map. I want to know where I'm going just by the way I'm steering. But on maps, the way you're supposed to read maps is north is always at the top of the page. And so that's the way you see it behind me. Yet our text says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he's going down. Many of you have heard, well, that means he went uphill, and you imagine a little hill he went up. No, it's a big hill he went up. It's a, it's a rather steep hike. It's not it, it, over the distance that the, he has to cover. It's, it's not that steep, but it's a pretty significant elevation gain. So you'll see Capernaum up behind me. You'll see the negative 600 feet. It's 600 feet below sea level at Capernaum. It's in a valley. But then you'll also see Jerusalem's elevation is 2,500. So you do the math, and that's 3,100 feet in elevation gain. And if you've camped, or if you've hiked partially up Mount Rainier to Camp Mir, I believe it's similar to Mount St. Helens. That's the one I've done a couple of times, and that's a 4,500 elevation gain. And it's a difficult hike. This is not an easy walk. But when you read the scripture that says he went up to Jerusalem, you can clearly see that is a significant elevation gain. That's what that's about. The reason why I wanted to show you that is because all of us, or all of us that know this already, at some point in time, read it in a book, heard a preacher on the radio, heard it in church, learned it in Sunday school, had a parent teach them somewhere at some point in time, you learned when it said he went up to Jerusalem, it was talking about elevation gain. So maybe somebody here for the first time today has heard that, and this is the moment you learn it. So there you go. I hope that you'll learn some more things as we peel back some of the scripture 
that we're familiar with this morning in the first part of John. Now, I do want to talk to you about the scenario that we see Jesus getting into, because this is the time of the Passover. It's pre-Passover, and so people are journeying to Jerusalem. It's not just Jesus. It's all of the Jewish people who can make it are journeying to Jerusalem. It's, it's an annual thing. And they are regulated in what's expected of them. And one of those things that's expected of them is to, is to make sacrifices. And their personal sacrifice is the way we're expected to make sacrifices. You're supposed to give your best to God. So if you have an animal that you're sacrificing to God, you give your best. You don't give off the bottom. And if you're making this long journey and you're taking your animals uphill for a long trip, taking care of your family as you do this, your animals might get worn out and may, they, might not lo- may, they may no longer be the best. So the priests and others figured out a way to capitalize on this moment. Now, Josephus recorded that he believed there was around 3 million people at a particular time in history that had converged on Jerusalem, Jews who had converged on Jerusalem when a particular takeover happened when the Jews were captured. Now, if that's the case, and it stayed similar, that is a lot of people converging on one town and in one location. So if everybody's going there to make sacrifices and they want to make sure they have their best when their animals might not be their best as they travel, maybe they'll want to purchase one when they get there that's kind of nice. They also had to give um, some birds that were required by the law. And so these would be given. Everybody had to do this. So how do you travel with them? That's hard. So purchase them there. And you also had to give some uh, Jewish currency, which wasn't what was common in Jerusalem at the time. It was Roman currency. So the priests had not only allowed, but they had actually facilitated having all of this stuff set up so that people could make their sacrifices. And if you're going to do a currency exchange, you know how that works if you've ever done it. People don't do that for free. They charge a little bit because that's their business they've started. And the priests got in on this and they had racked up the exchange amount so that they would make a lot of money. In some cases, even more than a hundred times the value. So they're really putting it to the Jewish people that are coming just to do what they're supposed to do spiritually. And the priests know this and they're lining their pocketbooks. They're doing the same thing for the, the price of the, the birds that they have to sacrifice. So these sacrifices become pretty big for the people. But the people of God that are supposedly facilitating all of this are actually, they've, they've become thieves. They've, they've become people who are taking advantage of people that have no other option. When they get there, this is the only option they've got. Maybe you've traveled to a foreign country, or how about even better, you probably know this. Maybe you've gone to a professional sports event, and you just want a water. I don't want to buy real estate. I just want to buy a bottle of water, but it's like the price of real estate. Come on, $5 for a little bottle of water? Seriously? I can get two cases at Costco for that. 
And by the way, the bottle you're buying is probably Kirkland. They're making a killing on people at these places. This is what's happening in a place that God's people, this, is, this has become a place where it's a centralized location for ultimate worship. And they're being taken advantage of. This is supposed to be a time. This is a Passover. You remember what this is all about. It's when the, the people of God were going to, there was, a, there was a curse that was going out because Pharaoh wouldn't listen for the other plagues that came. And finally, the big bad one that would finally make Pharaoh let God's people go uh, was that the death of the firstborn. Remember, they, they did what, what it takes so that the Jewish people's firstborn would survive. And this is a symbol of Jesus in the future. And this is a very special time. Jesus knows his moment is coming. It's about to culminate. Here's the Passover. This is supposed to be actually pointing to what he's going to do. And they are not doing that at all. They're, they are going there and the People that are facilitators are taking advantage of God's people, and God's people are feeling like they're being taken advantage of, and their focus isn't on this great thing that God is about to do, that they've been planning for thousands of years for God to do. So I want to read to you from a history book about this moment. And this was the entrance of the Most High. Now, let me give you a little bit of precursor before I read further, because I didn't give you some other things. When you entered into the temple area, and I'll show you an image in a minute. When you entered into the temple area, and there's actually two terms that are used in the Koine Greek for the temple. One of them is talking about the main temple area where the Holy of Holies and um, the Holy Place are. Um, that That's a and they've got little courtyards in there. But then there's the bigger area, and you'll see that in a minute, and the, the general temple area, including the outer parts. That's the word that John uses in the text. But here in this temple outer area, there are, there's livestock and all kinds of other animals that are just all around so that the people of God can purchase them. And so that, I wanted to give you that. Uh, and this was the entrance of the Most High. The court, which was a witness, had been degraded into a place which for foulness, so you imagine it stunk of like maybe you're going to one of the fairs that's, that are happening all around. You know how that smells? Uh, maybe you've been raised on a farm and you know how that smells. You know, foulness, but it's not just about the smell. Imagine that God is supposed to be smelling the aroma of the sacrifices, but instead, his people have lost focus. Which for foulness was more like shambles, and for bustling commerce, more like a densely crowded bazaar. While the lowing of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the babble of many languages, the huckstering and wrangling, the clinking of money and of balances, perhaps not always just, might be heard to the adjoining courts, disturbing the chant of the Levites and the prayers of the priests. 
This is the stage that was set for Jesus. As he goes into the temple, it is nothing like God designed. It has become a place that is way off the mark. Here's the, one of the images I told you I would show you, and I'll show you a detailed one later, but you can see Jerusalem, and you can see the temple area, which is the elevated area, and in fact, some of it's not that elevated. It's still considered the temple area. And then in the middle, you can see the more specific temple area, the one that would include the courtyards, and that is what... Um, that is a very special place. We'll peel that back and look more at more details concerning that in a minute. I just wanted to give you an idea. Imagine that's full of livestock and chaos. All right. So we'll read a little further in our text. John chapter 2, verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So this is more disturbing to Jesus than it would be to us. But this is not the way the temple is supposed to be taken care of. And this is what he found. Something that smells like a barn everywhere you go. Instead of the sacrifices that you should be smelling as this, the priests and the Levites are taking care of God's people. We'll read further in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I want to give you a visual. So I'll go ahead and we'll throw up a piece of artwork you'll see behind me. I looked over several. This is one that is probably fairly accurate. Um, when you see the term cords, if it's made of more than one cord, a whip. I've heard Christian songs. I've heard preachers. I've read authors say that Jesus went in and he cracked a whip. Y'all get out of here. Let me tell you something. In the first century, nobody was braiding whips. They, nobody anywhere in that area was braiding whips. If you wanted to make a cracking whip, you use one strand of leather, not many. Because if you start adding more than one to your one... <laughs> It doesn't make a sound when you do that. No, Jesus fashioned a whip as a tool of intimidation, possibly even to help with driving out the animals. But I've, I've seen a lot of artwork painting a picture of Jesus who is just standing there pointing his finger and holding the whip down at his side and with a very effeminate and soft face, almost, you could just imagine the words, y'all need to go now. I don't think that happened. I don't think anybody would have left. They would have probably told him, you, you go. Now, I want you to get a visual in your head of a first century carpenter. That's Jesus' profession. And a first century carpenter didn't have two-by-fours like we do today. Some of you have lived in older houses that were built before the 20th century. And some that were even built in the mid-20th century were still using two-by-fours. We don't use two-by-fours anymore. If you've measured them, they're not two-by-four. But they used to be. Well, in the first century, if you've ever seen any of the remnants of first-century structures, the wood is gone. Well, wherever the wood was, 
it was big. It wasn't even four by fours, more like six by sixes and bigger when wood is used. The people that built buildings and structures in those days actually used a lot of stones. So if you could imagine what a first century carpenter would look like who has to, they don't throw bricks in the back of a trailer or pickup truck. They pick them up and they carry them. Big stones. If you've ever tried that, they're not easy to move around. And big beams, like six by sixes or bigger. Many men today couldn't even move them. Jesus was one who regularly worked with them. He also rode boats and he fasted. So you can imagine a probably fairly muscular man. He probably would be physically intimidating in today's world to most of us because that's the way carpenters looked back then. So his physical appearance could be intimidating. And if you're carrying a whip and you're flipping over tables, and I'm, I saw one, I chose not to show it to you. Somebody had actually drawn a drawing of Jesus turning over the money changers' tables and they drew what looked like a first century folding table. <laughs> Use your imagination of what a first century table would look like and how heavy it would be to move. How you would probably, if you had a first century potluck after church, how it would probably take more than two men to move those tables. Yet Jesus was in there. Imagine your table, whether you're imagining a stone table or a wooden table. Jesus is not going to go up to the table and try to be intimidating. Y'all get out of here and try to pick up a table. and He's not going to do that. If he's going to intimidate and drive out the people, he's going to be flipping over tables, which would require him to be a very strong man. Carpenters were. It wasn't unusual for a carpenter to be stronger than the average man. So you can imagine Jesus, he fashioned a whip, he, he entered, you understand, he's entering into these people's, this is their livelihood, and they're making a killing, they're making a lot of money. This is the time of the year when they do that, and he stops them. That, you know there had to be some kind of, at least, feeling of resistance, if there wasn't any resistance, and he was able, single-handedly, to drive them all out. The, the man who died for us on the cross was physically capable of handling himself. But he allowed them to take him. He allowed them to torture him. Get that visual of Jesus. Because we can see it when you read this scripture. This was a tough guy. You can't drive out all these people who are making money. They're doing just fine, and there's a whole crowd. One guy, one guy can't drive, do all that unless he is a physically intimidating human. And he was. We'll read further. Verse 16. <clears throat> and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, which is different than what he said in the second temple cleansing. He was clearly upset. He was clearly angry. So, I would like for us to 
look at a passage in Ephesians. This is, we talked about Ephesians a while back. Uh, we walked through it, actually. Be angry and do not sin. This is Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I like the English Standard Version because it tends to be very close to the original translation, or original Greek. So I like the translation. Be angry and do not sin. I'm not a big fan of wording it this way because other passages, other Translations say, in your anger, don't sin. But accurately, the Koine says, be angry and do not sin. Well, that poses a little bit of a problem, and we need to talk about this. Let's talk about anger. And when we talk about anger, we should talk about this kind of anger, righteous anger. You see, because right, when we talk about righteous anger, we can put a check mark on it as an okay thing. Yes, you can have righteous anger. But you see in the passage in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. You are not supposed to sin in your anger. Some people will take this very good translation, this be anger, and run with it. It's okay for me to be angry. And they want to justify hot tempers. This is not okay. One of the things that I think is not okay also is not, I'm not going to say it's not okay that people say this, but over the years, I've had too many wives come to me and, and not, not in an attempt to try to manipulate anything I'm going to preach about, but come to me and say, when are you going to talk about anger? And they don't usually tell me why they would like me to talk about anger. But since it's happened so often, I know there's a problem even in our churches and families with anger. And I can see it. You see it in society. I mean, anybody ever heard of road rage? Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you see it in sporting events and you... And you even see it in churches sometimes. Definitely see it break down in families, even out in public. So let's talk about this a little bit. I want to give you a passage in James chapter 1, and I'm going to give you the whole chunk of it. So let's go ahead and read it. Starting with verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, I want you to notice how God had the foresight to inspire James to connect this idea of being slow to become angry and this idea that man's anger does, does not produce righteousness of God. He connected this idea of filthiness and rapid wickedness to that. So man's anger is not okay. Righteous anger is one thing. Man's anger 
doesn't align with Christianity at all. In fact, you notice what it says. You have to receive with meekness the word of God that's implanted in you. There's, there's this idea of humility that people of God are supposed to have. And when you're quick to anger, humility is out the window. Think about the hot tempers that you see on the roadways. People getting, I don't know if you've seen this, but there are people that think they have to be in front of everybody. <laughs> and then as soon as somebody else thinks like them, well, that person's an idiot. They're acting like you, and you don't like it. But everybody else is supposed to be okay with you acting like that. God tries to spell it out right here. So be slow to become angry. It's, it's a choice. It's a choice that two people happen to make that we're getting to read their words today. James and John, sons of thunder. They were known for anger, weren't they? Well, there you go. Um, let me take you to Proverbs. We'll read this particular passage out of the Book of Wisdom in the Old Testament. Proverbs, chapter 22 starting with verse 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Oh. Did you know that? Anger is a learned behavior. Those of you who've worked in the public school system, you already know this. Because the child who throws tantrums, when you try to correct the behavior... Their parents come to the school throwing tantrums. Don't you dare get on to my child. Anybody seen this? No. Yeah, and parents get embarrassed when their child in public starts to act like them, the way they act in private. You know? <laughs> child just blasts a cuss word right there in school. Where did you learn that? Don't, don't tell them. Don't tell them. Learn it from home quite often. Anger, having a hot temper, is a learned behavior. And God warns us, don't even make friends with hot-tempered people. Because the more you're around it, the more you could tend to be the same way. You don't have to be that way. Well, let me take you to Galatians, because this might help us maybe modify our behaviors. We'll go to Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pay careful attention. It says fits of anger. See that? I underlined it up behind me. And it clearly says those who do such things, we'll underline that too, will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who have fits of anger. Well, let's read further in Galatians, picking up with verse 22, positive side. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice here that little two-word phrase, self-control. And notice this too, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So anger is from evil. This is all works of the flesh, having fits of anger and self-control. Well, that's a fruit of the Spirit. So if you are given to fits of anger, if you are quick to anger, you are not letting the Spirit work in your life the way the Spirit could. I would say to you, if you struggle with anger, what I have to tell myself, because I've had to battle it myself, lighten up. This is a phrase that I stole from Chuck Swindoll. He also struggled with anger, and he had to tell himself, lighten up. And some of you might say, well, I don't really struggle with anger. And some of you need to self-evaluate, because some of you get upset about things that you shouldn't get upset about. And you're very quick to do it. And you like to categorize it over here. It's not really anger because it, you know, I'm not throwing things. I'm not cussing. But you're angry. You don't want to admit it. But other people who know you well would say, yes, you're angry. So lighten up if you struggle with anger problems. I want to remind you of how stress works. I'll have a little chart up behind me. It's not the whole chart. I just want to remind you of how it works. This is the way it always works. You have a stressor. There's that thing, some sort of an interjected thing. It could be, it, it's, it's an, a life event. It could be a particular thing you see that generates something. But then the stressor itself is not what causes the stress. It's that second line, stress perceived by the individual. It's how you choose to think about the thing that causes the stress. <laughs> Somebody can spill a drink and just go, oh, another accident, and clean it up. Somebody else can spill a drink just the same and get angry. Why? It's the same event. In fact, one person could spill a drink and one person could be there and help clean it up and they don't get angry. Another person who witnesses it gets angry. Two different choices, same event. See, what happens is it's called, it is, it's stress perceived by the individual. That's when it becomes stress. The stressor doesn't cause the stress. How you choose to think about the stressor is what causes the stress. You, you understand, sometimes we're supposed to think about things in such a way that might be, you know, it might, might make us take action. For instance, your boss puts out the schedule, you're supposed to be there at nine o'clock, and you show up at 15 after, day after day and you don't say anything about it. The boss is going to perceive that stressor, you showing up late, as an issue that needs to be dealt with. 
and you caused it, so you might meet some wrath, and rightfully so. And the way you fix that problem is remove that stressor, show up to work on time or early. In fact, most people think er, uh, on time is late, just so you know. So show up early, then that stressor goes away, and you're not giving somebody to be angry about you being late. You're not giving them a reason to be angry because you're not late. But go back to how you process stress. How you choose to think about a thing is what causes your stress. You want to throw another word in there, your anxiety, your upsetness, your anger, whatever. How you choose to think about it is what gets you riled up. And I didn't write these terms up here, but I should have probably given you these. I call it self-escalating when you when you. Choose to be upset about a thing you don't have to be upset about. Other people call it overreacting. And then what happens when you perceive this to be the way you perceive it, the way you think about a thing, if you choose to be stressed about the thing, then your brain sends messages to your hypothalamus, to your pituitary, and then your body goes through all kinds of things. Your adrenal glands are activated. Your blood pressure changes. A lot of things happen to you when you are stressing. And you don't have to choose to stress about a thing. If it's beyond your control, why are you stressing? That leads me back to the cognitive behavioral therapy. Anthony could talk to you more about that if you need help with that, and he will guide you. But it starts with your thoughts. If you can correct the thinking, the Bible teaches us, repent, change your mind. If you can correct the thinking, then that leads to helping you modify the behavior, which then helps you feel better. If you want to learn how to relax more, start with correcting your thinking. It starts with how you choose to perceive to stress or not to stress over a given thing. Some things are worth stressing over. Some things you have to stress over. If there is an accident and somebody has stopped breathing, stress. Deal with it. Let your adrenal glands go. Do what you've been trained to do if you've learned first aid and help that individual. That is a legitimate thing to be stressed about. So let's go ahead and talk about it again. I want to show you a chart that one of my favorite Mormons came up with. It's, uh, if you've read the seven habits of highly effective leaders, you've seen charts like this, urgent versus important matrix. And the main thing is you've got four different categories. You call it quadrants. You've got urgent at the top line. You've got not urgent. And then on the side, you've got not important and important. For our purposes today, understand that most people in our extremely stressed out world, I mean, COVID has led to extra stress, it seems like, for most people. I was just speaking with a school administrator of a public school, and I'm I'm friends with this individual. I was just speaking to him yesterday, and he said this school year has been the absolute worst when it comes to violent behaviors of kids. And And it's crossing, even, he was telling me that a You would not expect it, but elementary school age girls have been attacking each other. And they haven't seen it before in this school district. 
It's not because like there's gangs moving in. It's because of just extra stress we're all dealing with. COVID has added a lot. Let's face it. But a lot of people think that if you're going to categorize things, you put them in the squares. And if you just don't go over this quadrant things, a lot of people think you, everything is urgent and important. If, it, if it's in my head, it's got to fly out of my mouth because I'm thinking it. No, you don't. I don't want to know everything that pops in your head. You don't want to know everything that pops in my head. Sometimes we don't think nice things. So you don't have to say those things. But a lot of people think, whatever is I'm thinking about right now, that's urgent and important. And you would be shocked at the grown adults that have raised children that are now adults. And we go over this chart and these people have their mouths drop open like, I never thought of that. I thought everything was urgent and important. Let me tell you something. Most things that go into that first box, urgent and important, require a 911 call. And if you think everything in your life goes in there, then you're constantly living in a panic. You're constantly living in stressed out, anxious world. You don't have to live like that. None of us have to live like that. And if you can figure out how to divide things and prioritize things, like what's urgent, what's important, what's not urgent, what's not important, very little needs to go into the crisis box. You don't have to live in a crisis all the time. You don't have to self-escalate. You don't have to overreact all the time. You can actually learn to lighten up. I've shown you this chart before. I've shown you some of the others or similar ones. Why do I do this? I try to, as I'm walking through scripture, I try to see what God's trying to teach us that's practical for real life. And for me, I had to learn these things. And if I hadn't learned these things, I'd be living in a crisis all the time and I would be stressing out everybody else that I was around. And I've been there. I've done that. I don't want to be that guy anymore. I don't want to do that. If you want to be the one who is the calm in the storm, like Jesus, if you want to be the one that when chaos erupts and you're able to get everyone relaxed, you want to be that person then you don't have to be one who self-escalates. Learn priorities. Change your thinking. Get your thoughts right so that then your behavior changes and you feel better. You can do this. It's what repenting is all about. Christians, of all people, who should be the calm in the storm, who should realize this isn't the end of it all, We know the worst case scenario is that your soul winds up in hell. And if that's not what's going to happen as a result of whatever's going on, relax. We can deal with this. We continue. John chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote directly from Psalm 69, verse 10. And it's an interesting thing. It's something that we feel quite often. This, we, make, we make connections. They're kind of like dotted line connections and are not really hard line connections, but we make them. I do the same thing when it comes to places where we worship. 
Places where God stuff happens, where Jesus is the center of everything we do. A place that we gather like this, we, we connect the dots and we start to, we, we connect to this place. I don't know about you, I pull into the parking lot and I, I have a good feeling about this. I know I'm going to be around people that I love and they love me. These, these, this is my family. I enjoy it. I, I come here, sometimes I'm distracted because I'm, I'm here. Uh, like I'm here on a Friday by myself sometimes. And I'm, I love being here because I think of you. You're connected to this place. And Jesus stuff is connected to this place. So I get that. And Jesus definitely is connecting. They're remembering, oh, okay, this is a special building there at the temple. I'll show you that again. This is the temple up behind me. It's just an artist's rendition of what someone believed it looked like. So let's go, let's go a little bit closer and look at a detail of the inner parts there. And that kind of looks special. It's got a castle look to it. It's kind of cool. But that's what that uh, area likely look like. Now I want to show you a diagram. I wanted to show you those physical ones, but I want to show you a diagram uh, that kind of shows you how things were laid out. The, you can see the M on there. The M is just, that stands for the most holy place. You can also see the sanctuary. Do you see that? That's the holy place, also referred to as sanctuary. And we'll talk a little bit more about sanctuary in a minute, but I want to remind you that the the most holy place, that's the place where only a priest could go once a year to make a special sacrifice for God's people. And this is where the glory of God, the power of God resided. And there's a seven-inch curtain. You'll see it up behind me. It's, it's kind of small, so you'll see it slowly appear. It's creeping on the screen. Watch carefully. You'll see it. It'll spit around a few times in a moment. This is a seven-inch curtain that went from the top to the bottom, separating the most holy place from the holy place, or the holy of holies from the holy place. So it's a very, very special place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. So no one else could go there but the high priest once a year. It's a very, very special place, representing the presence and the glory and the power of God. Now, I wanted to show this to you because when, if you remember when Jesus died on the cross, God symbolically and physically really did it. He ripped that curtain from top to bottom and you'll see what happens. Watch this up behind me. As that curtain is torn, that is symbolizing our access to the presence and the glory and the power of God. The Spirit of God is no longer limited to a dwelling place on earth inside this most holy place beyond the sanctuary. Now, in the new covenant, he's granted to indwell within us. Isn't that amazing? That's a very, very cool thing. This is what the temple was partially supposed to teach us, this whole design. I want to give you a quote from the Seventh-day Adventists, which I've got friends that are Seventh-day Adventists who tell me, uh, who told me up front when they told me they were Seventh-day Adventists, that I know I belong to a cult. Um, so we're not going to go there and talk about all that, uh, but I want to give you a quote. Uh, this is a good quote from them, and 
because it's a, it's a good interpretation. Uh, the Bible teaches that everything in the sanctuary, the dwelling, furniture, and services are symbol, symbols of something Jesus did in saving us. This means we can fully comprehend the plan of salvation as we fully understand the symbolism connected with the sanctuary. That is true. My, one of my biggest mentors, Seth Wilson, who's been quoted by various denominations, was never part of a denomination. He was a mentor to a lot of people. I would say that if there could be a mentor picked for my first undergraduate seminary, Ozark Christian College, I think universally everybody would say Seth Wilson was the mentor of that college. Uh, most professors that are there today, he was their mentor. Uh, Seth Wilson, very respected, very godly man. He was very short in stature, had a very booming voice, and huge in his representation of what a godly man is supposed to be. And Seth Wilson many times would grab, he loved to have a podium, and he would grab a podium, barely looking over the top of it, and rock back and forth, and he would always emphasize many times, don't call the worship room the sanctuary. I'd never heard this in my life. First time I heard it was from him, and I thought, what's the problem? <laughs> well, I, was, I mean, at Ozark Christian College, they have a facility that's at least twice as tall as this, maybe three times. Inside the worship room there, they have uh, the old-fashioned pipe organs, and some of those pipes are like almost three feet in diameter. And when they play these pipes, I wonder if all the neighbors in Joplin can hear it. It's so booming loud. It's amazing. I mean, for, a, it's, for an independent Christian church college, it's, it's almost like you stepped back in time and crossed boundaries in other countries because if you've been to some of these ornate cathedrals, this is what this is like, except their pipes are hidden behind the stage. Most people don't know they're there. Can't even see them. But once you know they're there and you see them, you're like, wow, and... and when you, you typically have a thousand people or more in there for worship twice a week, just with the college students and professors and some guests, it feels like a sanctuary. But he kept saying that over and over again, and I kept listening to him, and he would explain it, and you should do your own research. Because the reality is, he was right. This, this is not a sanctuary. Biblically speaking, the temple was designed to lead us to Jesus. And all those things in the sanctuary were designed to lead us to Jesus. And the temple was ultimately destroyed in 70 AD. There is no longer a temple, no longer an official sanctuary. So it's probably better that we call this the worship room. I don't think God is up in heaven wringing his hands when we call things the wrong things. But... My mentor, Seth Wilson, drilled it into my head that I should learn more about the sanctuary by saying what he said. So that's why you don't ever hear me call any room a sanctuary here on earth. I tried to learn, and I hope you will too. So since I believe that God's not wringing his hands, not once, if you have ever called this room a sanctuary, or if you ever do in the future... Not once will I ever, in my mind, be wringing my hands about you doing it. I don't think God gets uptight about it. I don't get uptight about it. I don't really care. I just understand that biblically, I probably will always refrain from doing that myself. 
That's my choice. It doesn't have to be yours. But let's read further in John. We don't have a lot of time to talk about all of that stuff, so it's just a little rabbit trail. John chapter 2, verses 18 and following, our text continues. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And you know, he's 46 years. What are you talking about? Well, this is Herod's temple. And you know, it's been redone and redone. That's what they're talking about. But the interesting thing, what sign do you show us for these things? You might be thinking, well, why are they asking that? He just did that miracle, the first miracle in Cana. Well, they don't know that. You know, he, he did the miracle, and then he went up to Cana, or went up to Capernaum, and then came down. They don't know. It's very doubtful that they're even aware that this is the guy that did a miracle over in Cana. We, they didn't have Google back then, where you could just look it up and hear about it. It didn't just pop up when you turned your computer on. Oh, this just happened. They didn't know. He just did a pretty big, significant miracle. And to them, it's like, who is he? Well, they're going to learn. And it's quite an introduction to the temple people because the whole temple was actually designed to teach people to ultimately anticipate a Messiah. And he's there. He was speaking about his body, but Jesus does this. He speaks in mysterious ways. He says things that we're not going to understand at the moment, but later we'll learn. Much like your parents, you know how you used to say, when I become a parent, I'm never going to. And then you find out, my parents were right. My parents were right. Well, Jesus is right. Destroy the temple. In three days, he'll raise it up. He's talking about his body. They didn't know. Later, they figured it out. Okay, the last part of our text. We'll read that now. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And that's why he says things the way he says things in the Bible. And it's a wonderful thing that we can look at John, who focused more on what Jesus said than what he did, and see these words and watch it play out as we go through the book. So, Wrapping it up, what have we learned? Number one, there were two times Jesus cleansed the temple. If you didn't know that, you know it now. Two, the New Testament church's place of worship is not a biblical sanctuary. Call it what you want, but it's not a biblical sanctuary. Three, Jesus demonstrated when the Father is angry, He is angry which is righteous anger. And if you want to follow that out, it's okay. If you know the Father is angry and Jesus is angry, you probably should be about angry about the same thing. That's righteous anger. Four, we can control our own emotions. For the sake of God's glory and honor, I highly recommend learn to do that. You don't have to fly off the handle. You don't have to self-escalate. You don't have to get angry quickly. Number five, and the final thing, a hot temper is a sign of not allowing the spirit to lead, a lack of self-control, and a tool of the devil. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us your word that not only teaches us 
but changes us. Forgive us when we act in such a way that is not bringing glory and honor to you. But teach us new ways, Lord, because we want to do better. We want to please you. We want to show the world what your people look like. May your light shine through us. In Jesus' name, amen.